Welcome to International Podcast Month, or IPM. IPM 2019 is brought to you by our Indiegogo producers, Richard Kreutz-Landry, Robert Anderson, The Drinking and Screaming Podcast, The Ostium Network, Damian Sidlow, Max Kasparek, Aaron Keon, Kyle Decker, Rocky Lee, Ryan Bolter, and Neon Green Tiger. A very special thank you to all of our Indiegogo supporters and to the IPM organizational team. And now, on to the episode. Happy International Podcast Month! Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about accessibility and disability in tabletop RPGs. There are a lot of systemic society-level barriers that can uh, block disabled people from pr- participating in games. These barriers can range from poor PDF design to lack of space for wheelchairs to ableist content in the games themselves. So today, we're going to shine some light on these issues and on what the RPG community can do better. My name is Re. pronouns are she and her. I'm the GM and producer of the Magpies podcast, uh, Blades in the Dark Actual Play. I also run SkillCheck, which provides copy editing and digital document accessibility services to the RPG community. I will be acting as moderator for this conversation, and I'm joined by some really fantastic people from the RPG community. My name is Faye Onyx, and I use Z and Hear pronouns. I have an invisible physical disability, and I'm also neurodivergent. And so I, I do for a bit of work with uh, disability in my podcast, uh, which is called Writing Alchemy. Um, and currently it's focused on a tabletop role-playing game series that uh, does uh, one-shots and short games in a range of different genres that center heroes with disabilities, chronic illnesses, and divergent minds, which are then played by people with disabilities, chronic illnesses, and divergent minds. I also create a lot of resources around disability and accessibility in tabletop role-playing games and storytelling that are on my website, writingalchemy.net. This includes uh, pages of links to various accessibility resources for tabletop role-playing games, a series of articles about addressing ableism in tabletop role-playing games, and I'm also collecting a list of disability consultants for geeky projects that I'm always looking to add more people to in the hopes that we can help um, further the conversation and help make more amazing content that is um, fully accessible. I am also working on a rules-light, high-fantasy, whimsical and humorous game system called Magic Goes Awry that is designed to be accessible to a wide range of people. That's awesome. There's so much going on. (laughs) We have a lot of projects. (laughs) Uh, Well, hi, everybody. I'm Mimsy, and I use they, them pronouns. Uh, I'm one of the moderators for the largest 5th edition group on Facebook. We're about 130,000 members strong at the moment, so that takes up a lot of my time. Uh, I have multiple disabilities and neurodivergencies, and I'm starting work soon as an American Sign Language interpreter in in a school system. So I deal with other disabled students and people like every day. That's kind of my job now. So that's really exciting, um, providing access that I didn't always get growing up. Uh, I'm also non-binary, and it actually sounds like most of us are at this point. (laughs) I, th- I think I think I'm the odd one out. <laughs> oh, you can be our token, Sue. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So I don't have a lot of official projects going on, I guess, but I am working with Stimsy with uh, Dots RPG Project for blind and visually impaired gamers, and I work with Misty Vander with uh, ASL for RPG, where we're finding American Sign Language signs to go with tabletop RPG concepts. That's awesome. So those great projects that I've been working on behind the scenes for a while. Um, yeah. Doing stuff now. Yeah, I've done a little bit of work with uh, Dots. I, I did some mailing around to game stores in the Chicagoland area, and yeah, they, they do awesome work. So uh, to start our conversation off, kind of the, the first question and, and topic to discuss, how uh, do each of you define an accessible tabletop RPG experience? Uh, what, what does that include? Okay, I have so many thoughts on this, yeah. but I don't want to like dominate the discussion or anything. <laughs> um, but um, since no one else is jumping in, um, so there are three main factors I think about for an accessible experience. The first is the accessibility of the game environment. So that's everything from the physical accessibility of the space to the accessibility of the game system and game materials to the accessibility of the social environment. Um, so there's a wide range of stuff there. But then there's another aspect, which is... Um, the content of the game and whether or not it's possible to create disabled characters that are able to fully participate in the adventure and whether there's ableism in the game system and how it prevents or not prevents presents um different like disabilities or like if there's like for example a sanity system which um, is presenting like stereotypes around mental illness and neurodivergence um, so that's like the game content and then the third thing is kind of um, I kind of think of as like is oppression being dealt with consciously because people aren't just one thing people have intersecting identities and experiences and it's important to make things accessible to folks um, around disability but also all of the other identities that they have so um, making sure that there's not you know sexist patterns like kidnap princesses or whatever or other forms of oppression that aren't being consciously dealt with but are just in the game and making it so people can't fully participate. So that's not to say that you can't deliberately deal with a sexist world or a homophobic world, but it like to deal with it con consciously rather than just recreating homophobia in a game or sexism in a game just because, you know. It's realistic. <laughs> in this world where we have dragons and magic and whatnot, yeah. Yeah, that's a, a, I think, a really, really good kind of overview of, of a lot of the elements that go into this. Well, if I can piggyback off of what was just said, first of all, I agree with everything that Z said. That is That was very succinct and well put. Um, my general rule for like, like a simple like yes, no checklist was this accessible for me is generally if the environment and content purposefully made people or inadvertently made people feel marginalized through experiencing it. I think especially the like the inadvertent aspect is really important because a lot of times people can do things that are inaccessible or even ableist without ever knowing, mm -hmm. um, especially because there's mm -hmm. such a wide spectrum of needs and perspectives that come into gaming. Um, like how Facebook knows me from my moderator status on Twitter. I'm known for two things in the tabletop community. I made 
a primer on how to play trans and non-binary characters after we got the blessings of Corlon. And I'm known for the fact that Matt Mercer and I had a discussion on ableism in Critical Role when there was a signed interpretation of the theme song in ASL that was not exactly up to snuff. Um, No offense to the signer in question. We've had a great discussion. They learned from it, but they did not realize that it was a problem for hearing signers who had never taken a class to perform music publicly in a hearing audience and to get praise for it while deaf signers are told that they're not welcome. So... We were able to spark this great discussion on making communities that are aware of and check their own ableism, even when it's something that like you genuinely mean well. And then that does like, I know that we can try to include things like racism or transphobia or trans analogies in our games. And then we are like, we're we're proud of ourselves. We discussed a great topic. Look at us go. And then you bring it to your, like your, you know, people in the community and they're like, oh no. Please fix that. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think the best example of an accessible game for me, in fact, actually never had to do with disability. I went to a women and non-binary game day with Paige Wheatman in Atlanta, uh, one of the admins for the fifth edition group and a wonderful woman. And just having an environment that was actively looking for marginalized people inherently made it a more accessible place because I felt safe to say, hey, I need you to face me if you're talking to me. I can't see your lips. Or, I'm so sorry, can we not say that word? Um, Because I think one of the biggest barriers to accessibility in open gaming spaces like Adventures League and Cons is that a lot of us are afraid to ask for access because there's Mm. such a precedent of it being denied. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I think definitely making that environment that is welcome is a great first step. And then obviously a system that's accessible is ideal. Yeah. It's not as relevant for me because with hearing like the ideal that I would want would be a signed player's handbook. And that's just never going to happen much as I would like for it to. Um, But even when that's not possible and then moving on to the content and how we're handling those topics, like as um, Faye was discussing, like, are we having this like ableism in our face and it's just something we have to struggle with in our escape or is it even being handled well? Or like I know in the fifth edition group today, Um, I had to ban people for using ableist slurs and they were like, I don't see why this word is a problem. And I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to understand, but you have to understand that it hurts other people. Mm -hmm. So getting those diverse perspectives in is really important in the content aspect too. Like, I know that's why I was added to the fifth edition groups Um, as the moderator team. They were like, wow, we don't know what to do for trans things. We don't have as many disabled perspectives as we need. We need that perspective, and they recruited me for that specifically. Um, We need content creators to also be going, wow, I have a character who's mentally ill, and I don't know if that's offensive because I'm not. Um, Or even if I am, you know, there's quite a few mental illnesses and neurodivergencies out there. Mm -hmm. Let's get other feedback. So accessibility is going from the ground up to the content and system all the way up to the environment that it's playing in and making sure that all of those are respectful and inclusive and openly welcoming and not just not oppressive yeah that's really great that 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 group like was aware enough that they had you know kind of these these gaps in in knowledge and experience and and deliberately reached out to be like hey we need people who can speak to this lift experience and help us make sure that this space is going to be better it definitely seems like in the last couple years that the kind of RPG community uh, has has started being 
more and more, you know, the, the, the broad RPG community of, you know, players and, uh, you know, the, the big companies and indie developers and all of that have really started being more aware of the fact that these are major considerations that they need to, to keep in mind when uh, working on these designs and things. One of the things that I've noticed is in terms of making things accessible, there's kind of a cultural shift in how we do things. And, you know, just little things like uh, when you're starting a game, like one of the first things you do is you check in and see what people's needs are and what people are going to need to access space uh, in terms of players. But also, like, uh, do you think maybe like cultural norms are starting to change in terms of like there have been previous norms that people are starting to realize are barriers and starting to shift to different norms. So for example, if things are being color-coded, like, you know, people who are colorblind are not going to be able to access that. And, you know, just like norms about even like how books are physically presented. Are folks kind of noticing like a shift in that in terms of like once these big companies start to put in the effort and money, it kind of almost sets like a different cultural tone where people start to get in the habit of doing things differently in a more accessible way. Something I've noticed in the fifth edition group um, that I haven't been able to see face to face because I don't go to like Adventures League and open tables very often because they're for one not accessible and also a lot of cis testosterone <laughs> um, i get enough testosterone from the pharmacy i don't need more in my life <laughs> but uh one thing i've noticed from being able to talk to other gamers and seeing literally a hundred thousand uh gamers interact with all the time is that's not the actual number don't quote me on that anyway <laughs> um, uh there's been a shift towards not necessarily just with accessibility but there's just been a shift towards for one more representation in 5e we're getting more people of color and more women in art and they're less sexualized and less stereotyped and that's great yeah uh, yeah and we have same-sex couples and non-binary characters and trans characters and trans player characters being supported by the developers so we're having a shift in the stores of the people you're interacting with because people who are racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic aren't playing the games with the trans characters and the strong women and the strong people of color, which is great. I don't want them <laughs> in my games. Um, so we're seeing this in general, a friendlier store environment, which inherently makes a better environment for people who have other needs, or I guess the standard needs of access and respect and communication that we're not given. But it's easier to ask for those when you have like inherently friendly and welcoming environments, which is kind of what I was talking about earlier with Pages Game Day. Yeah, I I um had a I started playing D and D mostly in college with a, a group of friends there, and then we all like hit our thirties, and suddenly nobody had time, and we've just recently started getting back together. Um, after we probably haven't played together in like five or six years, um, and we're playing fifth edition, and the way that I approach running a game now just because of kind of what I've absorbed from the community about, you know, having a session zero session, the, you know, safety tools conversation, finding out like what people need in terms of, you know, how long do we want sessions to go? Like how, how long can people stay focused on things? And that's a total, total shift from when we started playing where it was just like, all right, we're playing D and D and we're all just going to assume that everybody is on the same page about how that's going to work. I was thinking about it after because my brain can't process things and in- coherent chunks 
um, when we were talking about the how the friendly environment like itself makes an environment where you feel safer asking for accommodations. We also have to keep in mind that there is there are some disabilities and neurodivergencies and conditions and situations because I don't want to label everything a disability when the community itself does not um, that we just don't have accessibility for and we can't. Um, for example, as I said, we're not going to get a signed interpretation of a player's handbook much as I want that with my greedy little heart. I would love it, but we're not going to get it. And we have to keep in mind that deaf people statistically on average by the time they're adults have a third grade reading level if their primary language is English or if their primary language is American Sign Language rather than English because they're not using a language that has a written form. So sometimes when I look at the player's handbook, I get confused because I've had so many concussions, I don't actually know the number for it anymore. So I've had a lot of TBI and it's really hard for me to string those together. And the same thing can be true because I'm autistic and I know many other autistic players who were like, all right, autistic friends who get this particular chunk, rephrase it, translate it into our brain. Um, the fact that we have a friendlier gaming environment now means that I'm okay going up to someone else and going, I don't understand any of that. Please let me know. Whereas in gaming environments where I'm not comfortable, I will either not play or play wrong um, or be playing okay, but not know that. And I'll just be so anxious the whole time that I'm not really playing. I'm just having a panic attack in front of dice. Oh. <laughs> but we're in an environment where I feel comfortable with literally hundreds of people that I think I could message them and be like, I don't understand anything from like the basic rules, please explain. And I don't feel like they would judge me for that. And also, I should hope that I think that they wouldn't judge me even without knowing why I need it because we just have a welcoming game environment here and I think that makes it a lot easier because sometimes we can't provide accessibility I don't know many signers who play the game that I can ask questions to there are some but not a lot where I can get it in ASL but even then I do know that I can even without being able the system can't give me that access I need but I know that I can trust its community at least my curated perspective of the community I interact with um, to get as close to access as we can. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I think that's a really good point because I think one of the things is as like a game designer, I'm super aware of is the fact that it's not possible to make one game that meets everyone's accessibility needs. So for example, a rules light game system is something I've used with a lot of folks who have cog various cognitive disabilities which uh, can make things like less rules, less math, more accessible. But I definitely have friends um, who really like more rules-heavy systems because their brains really kind of need very clear, explicit outcomes for everything. And so I think it's also important to keep in mind that there is like e there is no like way to make one game system fully accessible to all people um, in terms of how everyone's brains work. Yeah, yeah, there, there's no one size fits all for accessibility. That's uh, my, a lot of my accessibility work is in um, higher ed. And that's a conversation that we have a lot, um, particularly kind of with the uh, sort of springboarding off of your example there of rules light versus rules heavy of the like competing accommodations. What do you do when somebody's accommodate like you know someone has a uh you know an accommodation that directly conflicts with somebody else's well, how you know what do you do in that situation so that uh kind of jumps into um with the the mention of of game design 
one of the other questions that I have is um, if you could give one piece of advice to RPG designers about accessibility, what, what would that piece of advice be? I guess my biggest piece of advice for RPG designers, if you can afford it, hire a consultant. And don't just depend on folks in your group who have disabilities to do the job of a consultant. Hire someone whose specific area of expertise is making game materials and game content accessible. And that's kind of like the biggest thing, but because like not everyone can afford to do that, I do have a piece of advice that goes for, I guess, any game designer, which is to keep in mind that disability is really diverse and that different people experience disability in different ways. So one of the biggest things that I notice people tripping over is in-game design, especially the in-game content, is the idea that... um, People can experience disability as a limitation. So I have a chronic back condition, which is like this. It prevents me from doing certain things like lifting heavy objects or standing for long periods of time. There's a lot of things my back condition limits me from. But there's another way to experience disability, which is to experience it as a difference that's neither better nor worse. And my anxiety is actually something I experience this way because it's part of how my brain works, which is basically my brain is thinking through lots of things all at once, which can get really overwhelming and cause me to be anxious. But it's also extremely powerful and useful in terms of analyzing things, noticing nuance, it's organizing, planning, it's really powerful. So I don't experience my anxiety as just something that limits my life. It's also my greatest strength. So I think the thing that I've noticed is game designers will latch onto one or the other experience of disability and present disability in the game as that way. But the, th- the problem with that is, is when someone has a certain experience of their disability, that's a very, for many people, very intense personal experience. And if they come across disability in a game system that's presenting disability as only the other way of experiencing disability, it can be really painful and invalidating. And so one of the bigger challenges in representing disability within game content is to make room for both experiences. Yeah, that's that's a really, really good point. Well, before Z talked, my the like the tiny blurb in my head because I try to have like a header for all of my thought rambles was <laughs> you know talk to people, get those perspectives. But I think that Z made a really great point that it needs to be those diverse perspectives on that disability um, or aspect of a character because disabled people are not a monolith, and even inside of communities, we are not a monolith. There are deaf individuals who are oral or who use American Sign Language or who use manually coded English, which is technically hands up signing, but not at all like sign language. It's very, well, American Sign Language, it's very English. It's grammar based. It's not understandable for ASL only users. There's deaf people who have, we call them capital D deaf. They are proud of their identity that we don't view it as a disability. We view it as this great cultural identity and community that we're a part of. And then there's obviously deaf people who consider that a disability, especially if they lost hearing later in life. Just the fact that I said lost hearing, whereas in the community we say deaf gain, hearing loss, deaf gain. Um, 
it's two sides of the coin, and we definitely only get representation for one of those in the fifth edition group. Like once a week, I have to delete a post that's like, what limitations would being deaf give me? Well, I'm not sure, but this group is not the one to find out. (laughs) Or a couple days ago, someone was like, what limitations would PTSD give me? And we're like, great, we're not talking about that either. We're not doing that. (laughs) But we get a lot of view of disability as limits. Um, Mm -hmm. People don't understand that it can be, for one, neutral or a source of pride and contentment and belonging that the community that comes from disability can be stronger than the burdens that the other or the outsiders place on disabled people because it's not if you use the social view of disability it's not the fact that i can't hear it's the fact that people can't sign mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we hear the phrase hearing impaired a lot and the deaf community considers that like a slur basically um i come back often as signing impaired um, <laughs> they're like, oh are you hearing impaired and i was like oh are you signing impaired Oh, okay. Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> it's invasive and it's something that we hear all the time because people don't understand the other aspects of disability. Also, we don't have, we almost never see the intersection, um, intersectionality of disability. We don't see deaf blind people represented um, without it becoming like inspiration porn. We don't see people of color who are disabled. And we also just don't see the word disabled without being told we can't use it. Person first language. It's people with disabilities. <laughs> oh, I know that you're deaf, but uh, the correct term's hearing impaired. We just we <laughs> we don't get authentic, <laughs> genuine disabled voices without able people telling us we're wrong. Um, ever, <laughs> pretty much. Um, so I think that it's very important to get those diverse perspectives when you're building your game or making your module or whatever. And then also, it's really important to believe them. Yeah, I've seen yeah. so many consultants who are paid and never listened to. Uh, because like, oh, thank you for sharing your perspective. I've decided it's wrong. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm just going to keep going in the direction I was originally going. And uh, thanks for your time. So- and I think sometimes people don't want to have to redo their work. But I think mostly people don't want to admit that fundamentally, they thought of another being as lesser. And they don't want to acknowledge that because they don't mean to. We don't think about it. They go, oh, he's in a wheelchair. Oh, they took an autistic person to prom. Oh, my God. This baby got a cochlear implant and can hear his mother for the first time. Well, I want to see that baby signing mother for the first time. I want to see those autistic people standing up for themselves and having that autonomy. I want to see that person, that wheelchair user. I almost use person first language and I'm deeply ashamed. <laughs> I want to see that wheelchair wheelchair user having accessible sidewalks. And I want all of those to be represented for themselves. So I we get that autonomy and self-representation that we're not getting. And we're just we're never gonna get it unless people are getting those consultants and taking feedback from the community. Mm-hmm. We're not gonna get it if we have hearing people playing deaf actors and people who can walk as wheelchair users and sighted people. Um, as blind characters we don't get those mm-hmm. so it's really this like whole media and cultural shift it's not just our games it's also thinking critically about other media we consume and how that reflects what you see in your games mm-hmm. oh my blind person is a stereotype what blind people am i seeing what blind people am, am i interacting with and are they in fact sighted people characters and i'm not interacting with disabled people and what can i do to fix that yeah, it's the um the the idea of like you're we're we're just in this 
very ableist culture. And yeah, like the, the thing about, you know, hearing impaired or visually impaired, um, I write a ton of material and guides on accessibility at my job. And there was a point like two or three years ago where I learned that those terms are like at, at best not preferred. Uh, and I think, you know, it sounds like more accurately like offensive. And I was just like, oh, okay, well, time to sit here and do some control F and just get that all out of here. Um, <laughs> of like, yeah, it's, there's, there's just so much to unlearn um, that just gets baked in by, by society. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, uh, I, any any aspiring game designers or current game designers listening, uh, check out Faye's list of consultants <laughs> and reach out to those fine people. Absolutely. Uh, it, can I add something? I know yeah, you're yeah. going to have way too much material, but um, I think the biggest thing that because we're talking a lot about the sort of pushback, the sort of not taking advice from folks, and I think the most the, the mo- when I get into online discussions that don't go well <laughs> about game design and disability, um, the biggest thing that I run into is this sort of idea of disability isn't – the only way to portray disability realistically is as a limitation or it's not realistic to, to portray disability certain ways or whatever. And this sort of idea of what's realistic. And I think the biggest problem is that we have able-bodied neurotypical people being trained by society to think that they actually know what is realistic about disability. I mean, this is a common thing with ableism where people will do stuff like jump in to try to help a disabled person without asking them what they actually need and get in their way um, and be condescending. Like there's a lot of things like this that happen where it's like, Able-bodied folks are trained to think they know what disability is like. Um, they are trained to think that if they blindfold themselves and walk around for a while, that actually gives them a sense of what it's like to be blind, and it's not true. Yeah. So there's a lot of training that society does that makes folks think they actually know what's realistic about disabilities, but it's not true. And the only way to find out what's actually realistic is to talk to folks with disabilities. Yeah, I I had to talk some people out of doing one of those kind of like, uh, I I think it was a, it was more of a digital accessibility thing of like, oh, like turn off your monitor and use a screen reader. And it's like, no, (laughs) using a screen reader takes a lot of training and time. And if you just try to go into it with no experience, like you're going to think that it's impossible for someone who's blind to use a computer because you don't know how to use this technology because you've just been introduced to it. Um, and I was like, that's well-intentioned, yes. but so wrong. <laughs> Let's try something else. That definitely yes. reminds me of when people, like when I say, oh, are you signing impaired? And they're like, well, no, my way, my way's right. And I'm like, why? Um, they like, they look at hearing and they're like, well, they can't do what I can do. So it's wrong. And because of that, then you can't explore like, what is, what is this range of hearing? What are this diverse group of people with hearing and you just can't understand it. If your only understanding of deaf people is if you wear earbuds, like noise canceling headphones for one day and walk around town, isn't it awful? And I think it's because we have a society of inspiration porn. We don't get Uh disabled people being authentic. We get disabled people who are cured or they're a tragedy. Over overcoming the disability or in spite of their disability. 
they're a hero even though they're deaf. They're yeah. a hero even though they're in a wheelchair. Or they were a hero and mm, now they're in a wheelchair. Or they were a god and now uh, they're mentally ill. Now everyone's sad. Like we just get this <laughs> narrative of disability and neurodivergency as this failure for a person. And that makes it so that we're unable to see what other people need. And also, we don't understand right. that if we're disabled, we can also be inaccessible. Like, there was one time, I don't remember what I was uh-huh. saying, but Tyler was like, oh, Mimsy, I thought you were about to sighted explain, like, mansplaining <laughs> for vision. And I was like, oh, my goodness. For one, I don't think I was, and I, the people involved didn't think so either. But two, I could have. And a lot of people, I mean, you hear it all the time, I can't be transphobic, I'm gay. Okay, cool, I'm trans. But also, trans people can be transphobic. Deaf people can be ableist and autist, which is ableism specifically against deaf people. And deaf people can definitely be ableist against blind people and wheelchair users and groups that they don't actually have that much in common with, except for the disability umbrella, but Uh like to think that they can. Um, We don't get to have those authentic, diverse stories, and Uh we definitely don't get to see it as a positive or even just an aspect of character. You know, sometimes my hearing is not the most important thing about me, and that would be really cool if it could just be another part. Um, uh-huh. It always has to be, this is Mimsy, our moderator, who's hard of hearing, and that's relevant because y'all are being ableist. Or, <laughs> oh my god, Mimsy's on a podcast, even though they can't listen to podcasts. And we don't really get this perspective of what disabled people can and can't do, and how that's not a hard line. That's a line yeah. that changes from person to person, and then can change day to day for that person. Yeah. So I I read an article that actually had like a study in it about like if you do the mimicking blindness thing, that people who cited people who've gone through that are less likely to think that blind people are capable of doing things. They're less likely less likely to hire them, more likely to think that they're really incapable just because that's not the real experience of blindness. That's the experience of a sighted person being blindfolded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I saw that same article and I used that when I was having to explain to my coworker why this this screen reader experience is a, a bad idea. I was like, actually, you're going to do more damage. So kind of to, to wrap us up, our last question here. What are some basic steps that players and GMs either at a, a physical table or, you know, playing online um, can take to make the games that they run and play in more accessible? So I have a, a, a list of three things, <laughs> um, which is step one, proactively communicate. Um, so that means don't put the burden on folks to say their needs, make space for, hey, what are the needs of everyone in their room? Or in the email exchange before anything even happens, because obviously you need to get the room accessible. Um, uh, and the second thing is ask, don't assume. So this kind of goes back to the, the fact that folks are often trained to assume what people's accessibility needs are, rather than asking people what their accessibility needs are. And then the third thing is handle mistakes well, which is basically if a mistake happens, focus on the needs of the person with the disability rather than getting up caught up in feelings about guilt or what happened and focus on the person's need, the person's needs and move forward with meeting their needs. You know, the sort of a quick, simple apology, but put the focus on meeting the person's needs and move forward with getting those needs met. 
Yeah. Don't don't fall into the oh I'm so sorry I'm the worst and making the person who's been like inconvenienced or or harmed or whatever be like no you're it's okay pat 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 <laughs> that that's that's not helpful for anyone yeah and it it just makes the thing bigger and more painful for everyone yeah yeah Mimsy what what are your thoughts on this I also have three things this time oh are basically the same um, <laughs> great minds think alike so for one, that communication is so important. I absolutely agree. And so much of it can be done ahead of time. And it needs to come up in session zero. And it doesn't need to be on the disabled person. Um, like, if you're able to, if you can, if you don't mind doing theater, their mind, or mats and minis, have both. And then once you have everyone together, either ahead of time or there, if it's at like, a store, you can say, okay, what do people prefer? Like, what do you need? I'm not going to assume that Theater of the Mind works for all of our players, especially maybe if you can't hear me say where the character is. But I i don't want to assume. And also, like, people will assume, oh, well, we have a blind person at the table. We're not going to use minis. They won't know where they are. Okay, well, maybe they can't read the player's handbook, but they can see the vague shape of where a mini is. And again, so not assuming what those needs are. That communication is so important, and it can happen at so many stages and should have check-ins. I, Whenever I DM after every single session, especially if it's continued, um, and not a one-shot, I say that, I think I forgot to do this my last game, but normally <laughs> every session, um, I'll message all the players individually and be like, what was good? What was bad? Is there anything I need to change? Was everything okay? And if not, I will never lash out at you for telling me. Because my second thing, which kind of goes to the, you know prioritizing the needs of the disabled person, is it's really important to be okay being wrong. Because everyone's going to be wrong at some point and you can't make it about you and you can't make it this big deal or you're going to draw attention to this disabled person and you're going to put them in a position where they feel like they have to placate you after you have wronged them. But you just mm-hmm. have to be okay being wrong once or twice in your life. It's going to happen as long as you're perfect. Because if you set yourself up as I am this golden standard of accessibility and then a blind person goes, hey, are you sight explaining? You need to step back and go, damn it, was I? Or you need to go, here, let's talk about it so I can figure out if I was. Because, you know, I don't know how I come across to blind people. I'm not blind. So having those discussions and getting those perspectives and being wrong is so important. And then my third thing was really just having, this was not my original third thing. I just (laughs) just have (laughs) concussion brain. So I'm making up a new third thing is having as many options as possible, like being aware that not everything is going to work from every person or for every person. So having this diverse section of things that people can work with so they can figure out what works for them, because I might be fine in a game with someone looking at me, but some of my friends might need sign support. I've played D&D games with interpreters. Um, I've played with um, signers who do sign supported speech so we were simcom we were speaking and signing at the same co- time it's called simultaneous communication or simcom not the best thing for asl grammar but the best thing for a mixed group if you don't have an interpreter and that need will vary depending on the person so making sure that not only are you listening to what they have but it's not just here's this one option yes no it's yeah. here are our 10 options if these don't work what can we do that will um, being willing to change those, I think that was my original one, being willing to change those plans and meet those needs is really important. But mostly just talk to your people. Talk to people, like not even yours. Like if you're making a system, you don't know who's going to play. So get as many point of views as you can so that you can work for as many people as you can. 
I feel like the the big takeaway from from this episode is going to be talk to people, communicate. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like is it's very good advice in in so many situations. It's going to be really novel advice, but really the big goal is treat disabled people like people. So mm-hmm. communication is nice. Yeah. That, that's that's a good place, I think, to wrap this up. Um, so kind of as in, in closing, uh, if we sort of want to go through uh, who we are and where uh, people can find us online. And then if you have any kind of like short, pithy closing thoughts. So as a reminder, um, my name is Faye Onyx, and um, I'm the most active on Twitter. Um, and you can find me at writing underscore alchemy or hashtag alchemycast. Um, you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash writingalchemy. And my website, writingalchemy.net, has, again, a whole list of resources. It has a whole section of resources um, focusing on disability, tabletop role-playing games, storytelling. It also has my podcast, my game system, links to my social media, a contact form, all of those great things. <laughs> Um, so that's writingalchemy.net. And as far as closing thoughts, um, basically, I had two, which is that accessibility isn't just about making game the gaming environment itself accessible. It is also about making game content accessible as well. And the other one is that shifting to a more accessible way of doing things is kind of a, a far-reaching kind of almost cultural shift, but it has benefits for everyone. Um, It creates more space for everyone. Uh, Just as Mimsy was saying, with spaces that are more about being inclusive of marginalized people, being safer spaces for bringing up accessibility needs, um, creating a space that is welcoming of people with disabilities, and basically just the diversity of humanity makes a better space for everyone to be included with all of their intersecting identities. Um, well, again, I'm Mimsy Dorsey, and you can find me on Facebook at MimsyDorsey or Facebook.com slash MimsyDorsey. Nothing secret there. Um, I have various other social medias. I sometimes have to change their usernames because I am trans, disabled, and queer in South uh, the South of the U.S. Uh, so for safety reasons, I have to change those a lot. So I won't give those out because it may lead people in a goose chase. Um, that said, if they message me on Facebook, I can hook them up with other forms of my social media if they want them. I feel like I've said most of the like low-key snarky one-liners that I have <laughs> to say um, that will get me yelled at by my friends who will listen to this later. But I just want to end on, I guess... And I've said it before, but like disabled and marginalized people are people. If you treat us like people, we will be able to come to understandings of what we need to do or what is feasible to do to make places accessible. As long as people are being respected and listened to, everything else should eventually work out. And I'm Re. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rhiannon42. My podcast is uh, magpiespodcast.net. And my uh, copy editing and uh, document accessibility services uh, are on rpgskillcheck.net. All of these links will be in the show notes. And yeah, I guess my closing thought, I think, kind of uh, from, you know, representing the abled perspective, which 
is so uh, underappreciated in the world. Oh, very um, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, for for able people who might be listening to this and going like, oh God, this is so much, and like I have been doing so many things wrong. Like, it's okay. Take a breath. You can do better. And just being aware of it is a really good first step. You don't have to know everything, but you need to know that you need to ask questions. You need to be aware that this is something you need to think about. Even if you don't have all of the answers, just talk to people. As, as we have said so many times, if you don't know what to do, ask. And if you are asking in a, in a, a respectful and open and honest way, people are, are going to be willing to, to kind of help you bridge those gaps and fill in those places where you don't know things. Thank you again to Faye and Mimsy for joining me in this conversation. I learned so much, and I hope that our listeners have as well. Tabletop RPGs can be an incredibly unifying way of having fun, making friends, and telling stories. But they have to be open to everyone. Check out some of the resources in the show notes and see what you can do to start building and playing more accessible games. And thanks to International Podcast Month for originally hosting this episode. To check out all the IPM episodes, visit internationalpodcastmonth.com. Check out the Twitter, at PodMonth, and tag your thoughts about what you heard with hashtag IPM2019. The intro and outro music for all IPM episodes is Morning Dew by Liquid and used under a Creative Commons license. The link is in the show notes. You can support International Podcast Month via coffee or PayPal and by retweeting, sharing, and talking about the event using the IPM 2019 hashtag. Head on over to internationalpodcastmonth.com for the month-long blog and information on the event. International Podcast Month, celebrating creators, sharing listeners. 